It's day 16 of Heart Dive 365. I'm your Bible study friend, Kanoi. Welcome to the Heart Dive Podcast. Well, if you are studying with us in real time today, I'm doing a 24-hour fast if anybody wants to join me. So if you have any prayer requests, go ahead and let me know in the comments below. I've also left a couple of links about fasting because I'm not going to talk about it here. But if you want to read up on fasting, what that entails, what it is, and how to do it biblically, you can find those links in the description box. But every now and then, whenever you wake up to heavy news, sometimes all you can do is pray. And so I just decided to do that. So again, if you want to join me, I am here praying with you praying for you as I devote this day to fasting. We are back in the book of Genesis. Everybody's like, yes, hallelujah, where we are now going full steam ahead with the promise of a new nation and a new people, namely Israel and the Hebrews. And it couldn't come at a better time because I don't know about you, but I am ready just to move forward. It is a new day a new beginning, new mercies. And if you are on that train with me saying, we ain't got time for nonsense, let's go. Then will you hit that like button like it's a reset button? We are resetting today. We are staying focused on the word and on God's purposes. And everybody shout an amen. Put it in the comments if you're in agreement with that, because we know what the enemy is trying to do here. We ain't having it. So let's pray. Let's get into the word. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are, for being such a good father, for being our good friend, for being our counselor, our comforter, for being our healer. You are the great I am. You are every answer, your every need. So I just pray, Lord, as we lay everything before you today, our worries, our anxiety, anything that is weighing heavily on our heart today, our prayer requests, things that we're asking and hoping for, we just place them at your feet today, Lord, so that we can clear out ourselves of ourselves and give you room to come in and do your thing. We need you to do that, Lord, today. And so I just pray that you please forgive us where we have fallen short, where we have hurt someone, where we have done anything that grieved your heart, Lord, will you please forgive us? I pray that you will call it to memory if we don't even know what we may have done. And help us to reconcile, to make things right. And I come against the enemy and trying to pervert that, trying to make what is a good thing, like seeking forgiveness, asking for grace, being kind, and trying to pervert it and twist it in people's minds, making it look like it's a bad thing. It isn't a bad thing. It isn't a waste of time. It is worth it to be able to do that. So help us to make things right. Help us to move forward, to not stay stuck in the past or even stuck in the middle. And I just pray, Lord, that this will indeed be a new beginning for all of us. I pray for unity in this group, God, where the enemy is trying to come in, steal, kill, and destroy. We come against him. We resist him. And we know that when we do, he will have to flee. And so we declare that today. This is holy ground. This is your house. This is your space. And he is not welcome here. So we thank you, Lord, for this time together as brothers and sisters. And I pray that we will see each other that way. We are not each other's enemies, Lord. We are together on the same train, the same boat. So I pray that we will not sink it. (laughs) We love you so much. And we just thank you for this time we get to spend in the word. Help us to understand. Give us open ears, eyes, and hearts to be able to listen to what you are saying, what you said back then, but how it applies to our hearts today. We love you so much. We thank you again. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.
So remember, we left off in Genesis in chapter 11, whenever God called Abram to leave his family and go out to the land in which God was showing him. And remember that he stopped in Haran, and that is where his father, Terah, ended up dying. Now, just a reminder, the name Abram actually means exalted father. Now, the Lord, and this is either Yahweh or Jehovah, whichever pronunciation you prefer, said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So a repetition of what he had said before. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of all the earth shall be blessed. So here we see seven I wills, seven promises that the Lord is speaking over Abram. The number seven, by the way, in the Bible often marks fullness or completion. So this section here is a prologue to the Abrahamic covenant. And look at all of the things that he is saying. When he says, I will bless you, that means he is going to take pleasure in, that is showing God's warmth and his smile over Abram, that he is going to make his name great. Mind you, the name Abram or Abraham is probably one of the most well-known names in the entire world, celebrated by Christians, Muslims, Jews. Everybody knows Abraham. So this is a huge honor because back in the day, if your name was forgotten, then that would have been the biggest disgrace to have your name wiped off of the face of the earth. And this right here is huge to understand that he will bless those who bless the nation of Israel and he will curse those who dishonor the nation of Israel. We've got to keep this in our minds and in our hearts at all times. What the nation of Israel means to the heart of the father. Verse four, so Abram went. Now, mind you, he went, but there was a delay from the time that he was told to go to when he went. And this gives me so much hope because how many times has God called us to do something, told us to do something, and we waited? Maybe we didn't do it at all. But God doesn't give up hope and he doesn't even chastise you whenever you finally do the thing. He loves it when you finally step out in obedience and he's going to celebrate that. And that is what he does with Abram. As the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Now notice that it says here that Lot went. That means Lot chose to go. Some people have criticized Abram in the past and I think I may have even mentioned it. The fact that Abram quote disobeyed by bringing Lot with him. So this right here kind of changed my mind and seeing that, oh, okay, maybe Lot was kind of tagging along. But nevertheless, the fact that Abram went shows that he was being obedient to what God was calling him to do. So Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now, I have seen that he was anywhere from 50 years old to 70 when he was actually originally called. I believe it's closer to 70 because when you look at the timeline here, Terah was 130 whenever Abram was born and God told him to go when Terah was 200. So that leaves Abram to be about 70 years old. I think last year I said 50 because that's what the John Corson commentary said. But this year I was a little bit more diligent in trying to figure out what the actual age was. Now, God's promises were enough to inspire Abram's obedience. He didn't need proof. He went in faith. And this will be the vital key to his great name. His righteousness will hinge on his belief in God. And to me, this is incredible because I wonder how many of us would leave everything behind and walk by faith and not by sight. Yet that's what Jesus has called us to do. So heart check. Is God's promise enough to lead you to obedience? What promises do you live by? 
And I encourage you to make a list of three to five life verses or promises that you can live by, marking the ones that are essential for this season, because there will be promises that you will need to hold on to for your whole life and others that you will need in season. A book I highly recommend is the Jesus Person Promise Book. It has, I believe, 800 promises from the Word of God. It's really small, easy to read, easy to grab onto, and just reference from time to time and easy to thumb through when you don't know where to find promises in the Bible. I have that linked in my Amazon link below. And now moving on in verse five, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Now, this is the first mention of Canaan in the Bible. Mind you, Canaan is inhabited at this time with the most evil of people, the most idolatrous of people. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. Now, this term passed through actually comes from the Hebrew word Aver or Aber, which sounds a lot like the name Eber, and that is the root word for the term Hebrew, which are the people that come from the nation of Israel. So this name will always remind the people of Abraham's obedience and the fact that he passed through this land to get to the land of Canaan. Now we also see Shechem here. Shechem actually means shoulder, and it was sandwiched between two mountains or hills called Gerizim and Ebal. We'll learn more about them later. But this was right in the middle of Canaan. And this is a place to remember because a lot of really significant things happened here at Shechem. And then there was the Oak of Morah. The oak or the terebinth tree served as a marker later on for the future generations. And Morah actually means the teacher. This is in relation to the Torah, which means instruction. So it's pretty interesting how all of these names really come together when we may have actually just glanced over them before. And this tree here is actually going to be a marker for the Lord's covenant later on commemorated under the uh, guidance of Joshua. Now, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land, meaning all of this land belongs to Israel. It's biblical. The land belongs to Israel. God gave it to them. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So once again, Abram is worshiping God. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. Now, Ai actually means ruin, or some people say this is kind of like the word sewer. Bethel means house of God. So he is building his altar and his tent right in the middle of the house of God and the house of ruins. And notice that Abram didn't stop to lay a foundation or to maybe put his flag in the ground. He pitched a tent, a temporary dwelling, because he knew that this is not his final destination. He knew that this life was temporary, and it kept him from rooting himself too deeply into the things of this world. And sometimes we can do that. You know, we can think that this life is all that we have, and so we will invest everything we can into earthly dwellings, earthly possessions, thinking that those are the things that are going to bring us happiness. And then when it doesn't, we just start the hamster wheel all over again, looking for something to make us happy. And most of us don't have a tent mentality. 
but we should, because we are merely pilgrims or sojourners who are simply passing through this life, just as Abram did through this land. So if we could get our minds set on our final destination of heaven, then we could just sit back and relax and enjoy the flight, like the flight attendants say. So heart check. Do you find yourself pitching a tent in this life? Or is your foundation set here on this earth? And there he built an altar to the Lord. Once again, he's worshiping him and called upon the name of the Lord. Now, this calling upon the name of the Lord is actually the beginning of evangelism by Abram. This called upon is not just a private prayer. This would have been a public proclamation. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now, why did he keep going south? Well, it's because he didn't quite find any land that could keep all of his herds and his flocks. I mean, he was a man of great wealth, and he had so many animals that this land that he was in could not house them, so he continued south to find a space for them. So, God has started to establish his Abrahamic covenant by saying he's going to give this land to Abram's offspring. But the thing is, is that it's going to take another 400 years before the idolatrous Canaanites are actually completely wiped out of that land. Verse 10, now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt. Now, anytime we speak of Egypt in the Bible, this oftentimes speaks of worldliness. And so that is why you will see him talking about going down, even though it is physically south, it is also symbolically south by him. Him going down there. He's trying to take matters into his own hands because he is worried about the fact that there is a famine and perhaps he isn't trusting that God will provide him the provision. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. Now, this is a rare mention of a woman's beauty in the Bible. We do see it with Rebecca and Rachel. We saw it with Job's other daughters, but it doesn't happen often. So when it does, it's noteworthy. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now, mind you, she is technically his sister and also his wife. They just have different mothers. But the thing here is that he is telling a half-truth, which we know is actually a whole lie. So, he is bearing false witness here, where he is taking the right information, but he's implying it in the wrong way. And it always piques my interest that Abram, the father of faith, is struggling in the area of faith. He was amazing at trusting in the distant promises, but his faith would falter whenever potential issues were knocking at his door. And the very place of his strength was also the area of his greatest weakness. And this is crucial for us to see because if we aren't paying attention to this, we too can fall in a moment of weakness whenever there's no dependence on God. You know, most of us have got our weaknesses nailed down. We know where we fail. We know where we need help. But do you know the areas in which you are strong? Have you ever taken inventory of it? So heart check, what are your strengths? What areas of your life do you find yourself less dependent on God? And how can you keep those areas surrendered to Him? Verse 14, now when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. So it's kind of backfiring on Abram here. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Now, the fact that he has given him all of this 
goes to show that he is honoring Abram. He gave him camels, which is like the modern day Rolls Royce or Ferrari. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So God protected Sarai. What mercy he has on both Abram and Sarai. And he has to because he's made a covenant with him, and obviously he needs to be able to protect that covenant. So he's not going to allow their mess ups to thwart his purpose. But mind you, there will be issues that follow them, specifically speaking about Hagar, Sarai's servant, who she actually picks up in Egypt, who will cause them issues later on. So this is the first curse that we are seeing as promised by God that anybody who dishonors Abram or dishonors Israel will be cursed. And this will happen once again on the house of Pharaoh and on Egypt whenever they oppress Israel. Chapter 13. So here we see that new beginning. Praise God. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. So he went back to where he started to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So whenever we mess up, I mean, we're going to do one of two things. We are either going to run away in shame or we're going to go back to where we first started, back to the beginning. And Abraham chose the right path. I mean, he went back to the place where he built an altar and put his stakes into the ground. And I just had one of these moments last night. I mean, I tend to drive in silence in my car. No music, no podcasts, just quiet. And I love it. But my drives used to be my moments of worship where I would just sing at the top of my lungs. I would shout hallelujah. I would cry. And I wanted to go back there to that sweet place of surrender. And whenever I did, there was the greatest release in my spirit. And sometimes we have to come back to that childhood home in our hearts and do the things that we did at first. So heart check. Do you remember the sweetest moments of surrender in your life? The things that you did at first? Do you need to go back there? And some of you might be in that sweet spot right now, or maybe you're making your way back to it. Some might be looking for that place. They don't even know what that looks like. So stay put. Don't leave. Stay in His Word. Start playing worship music. He will meet you there whenever you take those baby steps. And there is something so precious whenever you are back in His arms like a child once again. You might also notice that I have been drawing a lot more in my Bible. This is also something that I used to do. It makes me very happy. So if you've been wondering, like, why is she drawing so much? That is why. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not even support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So their land is overflowing with all of their abundance. Then Abram said to Lot, 
Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. So he is fighting for unity here. He's fighting for his family. And he's very direct about it. You know, he's not going out there trying to spout publicly. I mean, he goes straight to the source and he speaks to him. Hey, let's get this right. Is not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. And if you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I'll go to the left. So he's giving him first choice. And Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. So Abram is over here as the peacemaker, giving him first choice. He's selfless. He's like, you take whatever you want. I'll take the other, whatever's left over. So he is obviously trusting in God's provision here. Whereas Lot is selfish and greedy and he lifted up his eyes, but obviously not far enough. He's only looking for what he can see in this world. He's not consulting God like, Lord, what do you want me to do? Which land should I take? Because I honestly think in that moment, if he had, Lord would have humbled him and said, you know, you probably should actually allow Abram to choose, but that's just my opinion. And he is falling weak to the lust of the eyes. He is looking at the beauty of the land, but not considering what might also come with that. And I just thought, man, what would I have done? So hard check. What would you have done if you were in Lot's shoes and given first choice? Now, Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. So God is reaffirming his promise here, even after Abram messed up. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So this would have been a symbol of him taking possession of the land. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamer, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Now the word Mamer means fatness, or may have mean vision, and the word Hebron means communion. So here he is seeing the vision that God is giving to him while in communion with him as he takes on this promise that God is speaking. And again, he is saying, all of the land, even that which you are giving away to Lot is yours. So at the end of this chapter, we really see a picture of Abram walking by faith and Lot walking by sight. Abram, always a man of worship who would set up an altar because there he knew that he could meet with God. He could bring his sacrifices. He could ask for forgiveness. He could show submission and simply worship. But we never see that in the life of Lot. And we will see how that actually works out for him a little bit later. Chapter 14, in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kederlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyam. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddam, that is the Salt Sea. So this was a valley that is apparently covered by the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Keterleomer, but in the 13th year they had rebelled. Now when we look at the numbers 12 and 13 in the Bible, 12 usually symbolizes government. The 
number 13 typically symbolizes rebellion. And that is what we're seeing here because these four kings actually served Keterleomer, which means they paid him taxes or tributes, and they've had enough. They want freedom. So they're trying to break out. So in the 14th year, Keterleomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephium in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shava Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. So these are all a bunch of smaller nations that they are defeating. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites, who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboiim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim. With Keterleomer, king of Elam, Tidal king of Goyim, Amraphel king of Shinar, and Ariot king of Elisir, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits or asphalt pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. This is the main point we have to get out of this battle is that Lot and his entire family and possessions have been taken captive. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, and by the way, this is the first use of the word Hebrew, who was living by the Oaks of Mamer, the Amorite brother of Eshgal and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them. That's a pretty big army for a single family. So that goes to show that he has great wealth and great honor. And he went in pursuit as far as Dan, and he divided his forces against them by night. So he clearly he has some military wisdom here. He and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So they've got victory. This is a success. And this is actually the first mention of war in the Bible. And my husband and I were actually talking about this over lunch yesterday and whether or not war is justifiable or defense of your family is justifiable. And I was kind of on the side of, well, if you look at the way that Jesus went down and the way his disciples ended up being martyrs, I would say we're actually not supposed to fight. But here, and the fact that we don't see God rebuking Abram for defending or going to war in order to defend his family tells me that perhaps war is justifiable in certain circumstances or instances. Now, many of today's wars are actually all driven from greed and power, which clearly that is not justifiable in my eyes at all. But whenever we see wars like this and we scale it down to your own family, like would you go down defending your family? This is all a point of discussion. I am not trying to convince anybody one way or the other. I think it's just something we can talk about. So if you've got anything to add to that, I would love to hear your perspective on that. Verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was priest of God most high, and he blessed him. Now I'm going to stop here before we go on to what he said in his blessing. This guy Melchizedek 
it has been debated about who he is. Is this what is known as a Christophany, which is an Old Testament appearance of Christ? Or is this just a priest of Salem? Now, his name actually means my king is righteous, and he is the king of Salem, which Salem is a shortened word for Jerusalem, and it actually means peace, the root word being shalom. And so, if this is not a Christophany, well, we do know that there is at least a picture of Jesus through his life because he was a priest. There was no genealogy given of him. He did bring bread and wine, which obviously those are elements of communion or Christ's death. And where Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Well, here we could say perhaps they are taking of the bread and wine in anticipation of Jesus. There are other areas in the Bible that speak of Melchizedek. If you want to take a look at some of those scriptures here, but we're going to come back to what it says at face value that he is a priest of Salem, and he is blessing Abram. Blessed be Abram by God Most High. Now, this word Most High is actually El Elyon, which means he has power over all of the nations. Possessor of heaven and earth, or creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So, he is acknowledging God as the source of all blessings. And look what happens. Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So he gave him his tithe. This is the first mention of the tithe. Well before the law, Abram is paying a tenth of all that he has to the priest. And that means that he acknowledges Melchizedek as an actual priest. And when he is giving his tithe to the priest, that is actually him giving to God. Even though the giving of that tithe will actually be the provision for the priest, when we tithe, we are giving it to God and his purpose. And so I did write down some of the things that tithing will do for us. It will bring us freedom because every time we give of our tithe, it's not just money we give away, but also a part of our own greed and selfishness. It also helps us to put our money where our mouth is. You know, we will sit here and declare that we're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. But are we actually living it out? Are we really truly trusting in that, that when we give our first tenth to God, that he will then return and he will provide for us? And it also proves our faithfulness. Because remember in Luke chapter 16, when Jesus talks about those who are faithful in little will be faithful in much. So there is great growth that can happen whenever you start to be faithful to the tithe. Now, we're not doing a heart check and whether or not you're faithful in tithing, that's going to come later. But for now, we'll continue here. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons or the souls. So he wants to take back the people that Abram rescued, which again, shows us a picture of Jesus versus Satan, right? I mean, Satan's always after our souls, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand in an oath to the Lord God most high possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or even a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamer take their share. Abram's like, I want nothing to do with y'all. So Abram is denying all of the plunder that the king of Sodom is offering in exchange for the people. And this is a typical ploy by the devil. I mean, he will try to lure us in with the things of this world in exchange for our souls. And it can be so subtle and so normalized today that we completely miss that his dirty little hands are involved in 
all of it. You see, He wants us to strive for success, and He will even be our greatest cheerleader the whole way so that we will think that we have done it on our own. But Abram knew better. He refused to allow any of that glory to go to anyone but God. So heart check. When you look at the times you were winning in life, who did you give glory to? Who are you working for now? Now, I am not sitting here subtly saying that success is a bad thing. Success is a great thing. God wants us to be successful, but it's all your heart posture, where your heart is in the middle of it. Chapter 15, now we see the beginning of the Abrahamic covenant being put into place. So after these things, this is what is known as a transition phrase in the Bible. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. So this tells us that Abram perhaps did fear. That is pretty typical. I mean, he's just had a great victory. He's just succeeded at something wonderful. And anytime we succeed, here the enemy comes with his little machine gun and pow, 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 pow. I mean, he wants to take you down. I mean, I'm experiencing that now. We have had a growth of 32,000 plus subscribers in the last 28 days. Give him all the glory for that. But that's a victory, I would say. And because so, there are so many arrows flying, but we ain't got time for that. I love that God always comes in and says, stop fearing. I got you. I am your shield. I am your everything. And he continues to say, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, oh, Lord God. And by the way, this is him saying Lord as in Adonai, that is the Hebrew word for Lord, and God, which is again Yahweh or Jehovah, Adonai Jehovah or Adonai Yahweh is Lord God. What will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Now, this is the only time Eliezer is actually mentioned in the Bible, but we could say that this perhaps is his unnamed servant that we will hear about later. Not sure. But what we do know is that because Abram does not have any children yet, it was customary at this time that if you didn't have children, then your heir would be someone who you would then adopt to become your principal heir and to continue to carry on the family name and all of the possessions. So that is what Abram's saying. He's like, is he going to be the one to do it? And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So he's saying your offspring is going to be innumerable. And so he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So Abraham's over here panicking and God is still so patient with him. And instead of correcting him right there. He's actually saying, hey, let's go look at what I've got for you. So Abram has just questioned God. But the beautiful thing is that even when Abram faltered a little in his faith, he still had that deep-seated belief. And therefore, God counted it to him as righteousness. And the term righteous literally means rightly clothed. And the Bible says that whenever we are saved by Jesus, we too are clothed with robes of righteousness. We don't need to work to go and buy a new wardrobe. We don't have to do anything to be saved. Now, we need to repent. I mean, that is a part of our active faith. And we can quickly derobe ourselves whenever our mouths get the best of us, when we are like Peter, or we take off grace and kindness. But thank God that where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And we always have that opportunity to put on a better outfit once again. So heart check. 
Are you rightly clothed today? Are your words and your thoughts aligned with righteousness? Because we do want to be a good representative of who God is, of who Jesus is. Verse 7, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So again, I love it when he says, I am, because that reminds us that he is everything we need. He is the answer. But he said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Here he goes again with his doubting and asking for a sign. But God doesn't rebuke him. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he sends him out with a grocery list. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Typically, it was customary whenever people would make an oath back in this day, they would cut open an animal, lay it out, and they would walk through it together as a symbol of them binding up this oath. And so whenever he didn't cut open the birds, I'm thinking, is that because he's waiting for God to come and walk through it with him? I don't know that I'm so sure about that. Does anybody have any info of why he did not cut the birds in half? And where the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So he's clearly trying to protect these birds that he has not filleted open. And birds of prey, remember, are symbols of evil. So in a sense, it seems like evil is coming down to try to break that oath or break that sacrifice. And so he's just shooing them away. And this was a wonderful picture for me today because I'm like, shoo away the distractions. Just shoo them away. Now, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. So he has now tired from trying to take matters into his own hands. And this deep sleep seems to make us remember the same deep sleep that Adam was in whenever God took his rib and created woman. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Now, this is probably more of like a holy awe, because remember when I said when people would come face to face with God in his presence and that Shekinah glory, they would fall to their faces in fear, but it's a healthy fear, a holy fear. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. There it is. Remember, we were talking about that. So God is basically prophesying to him, telling him that they are not going to take this land into their possession for another 400 years. And this will be fulfilled, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. This will be fulfilled in the 10 plagues on Egypt. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God is having mercy on these people to try to repent, but clearly we know they won't. So he is going to wait for the four generations before he ends up driving them out completely. When the sun has gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. So there's the two coming together, passing through. And it's interesting that he's using a smoking fire and a flaming torch. These two things would have typically been signs of judgment. So I don't know if that is pointing toward the judgment that will 
end up coming down on Canaan. On the day that the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephium, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites, and whatever ites you want to add in the comments below. God is giving him this entire land. So God made this covenant with Abram. Abram didn't have to sign on the dotted line. Why is that? It's because God did not want to allow this covenant to be breakable. So this was his covenant with Abraham that he would hold true to the very end. And he does, and he has. So he did this through an illustration where he brought in the Traeger and he simply smoked out this sacrifice to prove his point. But the interesting thing is, is that this was a land that was 300,000 square miles and they only take possession of 10% of that. They are only going to take 30,000 miles for their land. Don't you love that we can get this history lesson of Israel and where everything began and how its implications continue today? Let's take a look at some deep dive questions. What lessons can we learn from Abram's first journey to Canaan? What character traits of Abram do you admire most? And do you see wealth as a blessing or a potential problem? Do you believe war is justified? And in what cases? Do you think Abram's moments of doubt were justified? And how do these chapters influence your trust in God's timing? So Heavenly Father, you are the promise giver and the promise keeper. Thank you for the many promises we saw in this reading today. We are so grateful for your calling on the life of Abram as it lays the foundation for the coming of Christ. This isn't just about history or an age-old covenant. It is still so foundational for our lives and our spiritual walk. Help us to continue to see Israel through your eyes and for what you intended it to be from the beginning. This isn't condoning the evil that exists there now, but it is understanding that the nation as a whole is still the apple of your eye. And I pray that we will stay focused, Lord, on what is important. Keep our eyes focused on heaven as we sojourn through this life, knowing that it is only a temporary home. We know that when we long for bigger and better and greater, it is because we are longing for a final destination in heaven. We know that the enemy wants to keep us stuck in the pettiness of the world, but we refuse. We will rise above it and we will resist him by remaining true to your word and your promises. So thank you that we have something better to look forward to. But I pray that while we are here, that we will be a people who share your heart with the world, one of kindness and grace and mercy. Forgive us, Lord, where we have doubted your promises. And I pray that we will have a deep-seated belief like Abram and be able to move past moments of doubt. Help our unbelief today. And I pray that we will walk by faith every single day. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us so that we can be clothed with robes of righteousness. We didn't have to do anything but simply believe that you came and died and rose again so that we could be forgiven and be given eternal life. And we are so grateful for that. So I pray that we will have hearts that fight for unity. Help us to be a true family, one that seeks to make peace when fires start to erupt. Help us to go after those who are taken captive. Help us also to be faithful in our tithe and in our generosity, knowing that when we are, Lord, you will liberate us from greed and selfishness as we seek you first and foremost. And we know that when we are faithful in little, we will also be faithful in much. 
And as we take hold of our own promised land, may we not shortchange ourselves by failing to take authority of that entire promise. May we not stop short, for there is a harvest beyond the borders that our eyes can so faintly see. What an honor it is to be a recipient of your grace. And for that, we thank you and we love you so much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Heaven and salvation is a divine gift that is given to us by grace. None of us deserve it. In fact, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, and every single one of us have fallen short, and then we desperately need someone to pay that price. And Jesus did it. He didn't do it because we are righteous on our own merit. He did it because He loves us, and He wants to spend eternity with us. But it won't happen if we don't receive him before we leave this earth as Lord and Savior. Hell is a very real thing, and there is no second chance after we take our last breath here. So I want to be able to give someone the opportunity today who is saying, I'm ready. I've never given my life to Christ. I don't know where I'm going to end up after I die. But I don't want to live another day without knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt where I am going to end up. I see now that this is real and I want to believe. So if that is you, we're going to say a prayer and I'm going to put the words on the screen so that you can say them audibly with your mouth because the Bible says that when you believe and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that he died and rose again, then you will be saved. So we're going to say this prayer together. Believe it in your heart, speak it with your mouth, and know that this is indeed the day of your salvation. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I believe that you came, you died, and you rose again. I confess my sins to you today, and I turn from them, and I now live my life for you. I know that I am forgiven of all my sins, so I receive you now as Lord and Savior, and I belong to you, Jesus. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.